0: This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 26, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Marcus Knudsen talks about putting so much pressure on liquid-heavy hydrogen that it becomes a metal and the implications of this observation for gas giant planets. And David Grimm is here with some of our latest online news stories.
1: Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org.
0: Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on kid justice. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, I worked at a zoo. (laughs) One thing I noticed in the petting area, where kids were allowed to give treats to the animals, was this ridiculous, overwhelming urge on the part of the kids to feed the goats fairly. Someone was almost always shouting, no, daddy, give some (laughs) to the other goat. And now it turns out this is a most important observation, right, Dave?
2: It is. In fact, you were doing some science there, sir, whether you knew it or not. This study is sort of questioning whether very young children have this advanced moral reasoning, whether they can pick out injustice, whether they can notice it, and whether they can actually or willing to actually do something about it.
0: And they make a lot of comparisons with chimpanzees. <laughs> How do those primates stack up with us primates?
2: Well, as, as the parent of two toddlers, I can tell you uh, young children are very much like chimpanzees. But what we do know about chimpanzees is they have a narrow sense of justice. If somebody takes something from them, they 'll punish them, so there was experiments done where a chimpanzee, for example, stole a treat from for another chimpanzee, and the chimpanzee that was stolen from could activate a trapdoor and make that treat disappear, so punish the chimp that had wronged them, but they don 't seem to have something called third party punishment, which is when if a chimpanzee sees another chimpanzee doing something wrong to yet another chimpanzee, that initial chimpanzee won't intervene to correct that injustice. And we think third-party justice is very important because it sort of establishes the rules by which we live. We don't just, as human beings, we don't just punish those who do us wrong. We like to see other people who do wrong be punished as well. It's sort of the foundation of our justice system, right? But the question is, when does that third-party punishment kick in.
0: And in this study, they wanted to see if kids would act as the enforcers of kid justice. Would they step in to right the wrongs? How did they set up the experiment?
2: Well, it's a bit of a complicated experiment, and not only we've got a nice graphic that illustrates it on the site, but the basic idea is these are three- to five-year-old German children. They sit around a circular table. So there's one child at the table, and there's two puppets at the table. And the puppets can steal something from the child or the puppets can steal something from each other. And to punish the puppets, the child can basically make whatever stolen disappear into a cave that's on the table.
0: What did they do when they saw the puppets mistreating each other?
2: First of all, when when the puppet took something from them, as sort of like similar to what happened with the chimpanzees, the child would punish the puppet. But even when the puppets stole something from each other, the child intervened and made whatever was stolen disappear into the cave. So this suggests that unlike chimpanzees, young children have a sense of third-party punishment.
0: What I thought was interesting though is that they would much, much rather restore the stolen treat to the robbed puppet rather than hide it from everybody, just take away the treat altogether.
2: Right. It wasn't necessarily about being punitive. It was more about just sort of trying to make everybody happy.
0: This study used only German children, quite a few of them, but still (laughs) all German. Uh, Can we generalize it to all kids, you think?
2: Yeah, there were 168 children in the study. And that's one thing experts will point out is they'll say, well, maybe there's something cultural here. We can't necessarily generalizes this to all children, because all children aren't raised in the same culture as these children were. And so before we say that all young human children have this sense of third-party justice, we have to look at children from other places.
0: Next up, we have a story on a part-time diet. Severe dieting has been linked to increased lifespan in some animals. This link has not yet been established in people, but researchers are definitely still trying to figure out if we can starve ourselves to longer life. This latest study is taking a more practical, less punishing approach. How much were participants able to eat in this latest starvation study?
2: (laughs) Well, this was sort of temporary fasting, so they didn't have to basically just drink water (laughs) for a week, which actually apparently one of the researchers did and said it was excruciating. These people had to eat somewhere between 700 and 1,100 calories a day. Now, the average American adult male needs somewhere between 2,000 to 3,000 calories today. So people are eating half or less than half as much as they normally do.
0: And it's not every day of the month. That's kind of the key here, right?
2: Right. They only had to do it for five days straight. Then they could take a break, eat whatever they want, and then they would do it again.
0: With only a few low-cal days in a month, what differences did they see in the subjects?
2: Well, the researchers still found some surprising differences. They found that the participants had lower blood glucose, which is important for diseases like diabetes. They had less abdominal fat. And they also seemed to have lower levels of a protein that's been associated with cardiovascular disease. The researchers also detected a slight rise in the abundance of stem cells in the blood, which could be important for healing. So All this is pretty preliminary, but it does suggest that these short periods of fasting can be effective for improving human health.
0: We know from past diet studies that one of the biggest hurdles has been keeping people on these restricted diets. Is this going to prove to be more effective in making us healthy?
2: Well, that was the problem with calorie restriction. You know, researchers have pushed calorie restriction for a while, or at least there seems to be benefits from severely restricting calories, things like potentially increasing lifespan and decreasing the risk of disease and even increasing mental acuity, but it's really a hard diet to stay on, as we talked about a couple minutes ago. So what's nice about this is if it works, it's much more practical. It's a much easier diet to keep.
0: So are we all going to be joining local last week of the month clubs?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure I can do it. And the researchers caution that people with health conditions like diabetes probably shouldn't jump on this right away. Also, it's, as we always say, it's a preliminary study, so more data is needed.
0: Lastly, we have a story on what goes on inside the brains of birds. Parrots and other mimicking birds can imitate all kinds of sounds zippers, cell phone boops, our voices. But how exactly these birds are able to hear, learn, and reproduce such an amazing variety of sounds has been a complicated area of research. So, Dave, what's the latest news in bird brains?
2: (laughs) Well, Sarah, the latest news involves something called a song nucleus, which is a group of interconnected neurons in the bird brain that synchronizes singing and learning. Researchers have known about this for a while, but what they didn't know was kind of how big it is, where it stops, where it starts, and also what are the differences in it between birds. For example. If it is linked to things like a parrot's ability, what's different about it in parrots than in other birds that don't have that mimicry ability?
0: This study focuses on the outermost limits of the song nuclei. What do they find there?
2: Well, if you can think of the song nucleus as an M&M, <laughs> so it's kind of got this hard outer candy shell and this inner chocolate, the bird song nucleus isn't that delicious probably. But what <laughs> what the researchers found is that there seems to be pretty strong distinction in the neurons of the outer layer of this shell. And what's more is that these distinctions actually change from bird species to bird species. Not only that, but birds like parrots seem to have a much larger shell than those of birds that don't have this vocal mimicry.
0: So this overgrown shell is found in birds that are good at mimicry. But do we know what it actually does for those birds?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Right now, all they have is a correlation, not a causation, as scientists like to say. And what basically what that means is that we know that these larger shells tend to be associated with birds that are able to do this vocal mimicry. But we actually don't know that it's the shell that actually enables this vocal mimicry to take place. So that's going to take some more work.
0: Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week?
2: Well, Sarah, we've got some new insights into how turtles evolved and how their shells came to be. Also a story about how the flu evaded last year's flu vaccine. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a funding boost, or at least a potential funding boost for the National Institutes of Health. Also a story about the first woman to run a U.S. nuclear weapons lab. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. It's thought that the bulk of gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn consists of liquid metallic hydrogen, which has never been seen on the face of the Earth until now. I spoke with Marcus Knudsen about how his team went about making liquid hydrogen metallic and then how these observations will help us better understand the biggest planets in our solar system.
1: So what uh, we were trying to accomplish in this study was to observe metalization in dense liquid hydrogen just above the melt boundary, which is something that's really been a subject of theoretical studies for decades, really, first proposed in 1935. One of the other reasons we were looking at the fluid phase is that there are some implications for planetary physics and really our understanding of the gas giants Saturn and Jupiter.
0: How is deuterium, or heavy hydrogen, different than regular hydrogen and its other isotopes?
1: Well, it's basically just like hydrogen. It's got an extra neutron, so it's got twice the density of hydrogen. And that turned out to be advantageous in our experiments to help us kind of reach the pressures and temperature conditions that were of interest in the study.
0: And let's talk a little bit about the reasoning behind the study. Why subject heavy hydrogen or hydrogen at all to such intense pressures?
1: We know at low pressures and densities in the fluid phase that hydrogen is going to be a molecular fluid It's going to be an insulating fluid. But when we get up to high enough densities and pressures, it's going to dissociate, become an atomic fluid, which has been predicted to be metallic. And so understanding how that process takes place at what pressures and densities that occurs has really been a subject of study for many decades. And there's state-of-the-art quantum theories out there that predict this behavior to occur over an extremely wide pressure range, anywhere from one megabar to six megabar. And a megabar is a million times atmospheric pressure. So you know we're talking extreme pressures, but we also have extreme uncertainty in where this might occur. And so obtaining some experimental evidence would be very valuable to theorists.
0: How were you able to apply as much pressure as you needed and, and get the compression that you needed to observe these changes?
1: Well, so we used a pulse power machine at Sandia. Over the last 10 years, we've been able to use this machine to basically compress materials to extremely high pressures and densities. We use magnetic pressure. You can think of creating these large electrical currents. We're producing a mega amp, you know, 10 mega amps of current. That's 10 million amps of current. And when you run this current through an experimental load, you can basically blow it apart with magnetic pressure. The trick here in this work was to try to get to these extreme pressures, but keeping the temperature low. And we were able to do that by stretching out the pressure pulse and applying it over several hundred nanoseconds in time. And that enabled us to get to these high pressures and relatively low temperatures.
0: What were you able to see in this situation. So you have the very high pressure at the right temperature. What were the indications that you now had something that was metallic? Right.
1: So we were monitoring the sample with optical techniques. And what what we were able to see is, at first, the deuterium was transparent. It's a nice transparent fluid. And as we started squeezing that, when we got up to about a million times atmospheric pressure, we saw the sample go dark So basically, it became very absorptive in the visible, which is an indicator that the band gap of the material is getting a few EV or so. And then as we continued to compress the deuterium at around 3 megabar, we saw the sample become a very good reflector. Mm. So we saw broadband reflectivity across the entire visible spectrum with uh, reflectivity values of around 50%, which is a pretty decent metal. And so it's really these optical signatures that we used to determine that we had reached a metallic state. And we were also able to see not only this transition upon you know compression, but as the pressure dropped in the sample, we saw it revert back to an insulator and saw a very abrupt drop in reflectivity. It was nice to be able to see that transition both under compression and on release.
0: These circumstances are never going to happen on Earth, naturally, but they do happen other places in the universe. How does what we're learning here about hydrogen under pressure, what does it help us understand about, say, gas giants?
1: Well, there's a lot of hydrogen in gas giants, there's a lot of helium as well. And one very interesting problem that's getting a lot of attention right now is the mixing of these gases, hydrogen and helium. And it turns out the demixing, actually, of these gases, which is important in our understanding of these planets, and it it appears from these quantum theories that the metallization of hydrogen actually kind of acts as a catalyst for demixing. So as you reach conditions where hydrogen becomes metallic, the helium wants to phase separate, and it's a source of latent heat, so it's an energy source, and then you've got you know, helium pockets that can gravitationally settle within the planet, and that provides an additional source of energy. And so our understanding of how these planets evolve is really tied to how well we can describe the behavior of hydrogen, and helium, in these conditions.
0: One last planet question here. How does this relate to Saturn's luminosity problem? And what is Saturn's luminosity problem?
1: So, you know, we come up with models for the structure of these planets, and we can use these models to see how they would evolve over the lifetime of the solar system. And in the case of Jupiter, these planets start out hot and cool off over time, and our standard models of Jupiter seem to work well. Jupiter appears to be the temperature that we would expect it to be. In the case of Saturn, Saturn's actually hotter than we would expect, based on these evolutionary models, which would suggest that there's an additional energy source within Saturn that maybe is not occurring within Jupiter. And one of the proposed sources is this phase separation that we discussed, you know, helium coming out of solution and gravitationally dropping within the planet. It turns out that the region where this demixing may occur, it appears that the conditions within Saturn are such that this of behavior actually occurs, whereas it's not happening in Jupiter. And so, again, you know, better understanding of the pressure and temperature regimes where this demixing happens is, is helping us to come up with better evolutionary models that may shed light on why Saturn is hotter than, you know, one might expect based off of these models where we do not include the phase separation.
0: Okay. Are there any any uses for metallicized hydrogen on Earth?
1: Certainly, there would be. Uh, You know, if we were able to recover metallic hydrogen at ambient conditions, I mean, that would be a great energy source. And that one of the problems with using hydrogen as an energy source is its energy density is very low. Mm -hmm. If you have to carry around gaseous hydrogen, it takes up a lot of space. It's kind of impractical. Metallic hydrogen at ambient conditions would be a very high energy density. You could carry around a large amount of energy in a small volume. That's been a goal of research for numerous years, and producing that in the laboratory is one step, but trying to recover this at ambient conditions would be a huge step forward.
0: Okay. Marcus, thanks so much.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you.
0: Marcus Knudsen and colleagues write about making metallic hydrogen in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.